this is the Roaring Elfman Podcast. And we're back today, not just me, not just me and Dave, but me, Dave and Rosemary, or even better, Rosemary with me and Dave, because she's got the brains for this episode again. Very true, very true. No more uh, introduction from Dave. I, I guess he just wants to go into the, <laughs> the second part of the interview again, so... I'm just just get to it. It's too good. Get, get to We're it. wasting time here. Let's Don't let's do this finish. thing. Go. I mean, generally speaking, for for someone that maybe is coming this from you know they they've sort of got some relatively rudimentary automation in the form of some sort of simple config management in place. They're sort of in the early stages of of um, of, of thinking about this. Um, there's a huge amount of um, sort of automation in all of this. There's so much of what we're talking about here is is around automation. What's the what do you think is the real advantage of having so much of this automated? Having so much of this sort of outside the hands of of people manually tweaking, tuning, and fiddling with things. It's about predictability and communication at the end of the day. I think infrastructure as mm. code is a way to communicate with someone else the changes that you're expecting to make as well as the changes that you have made. It's very easy for me to go into a console and make the changes, but can I reproduce it myself? Uh, most of the time, I'm going to tell you I don't remember uh, what I did. So, you know, I'll like maybe I'll dump out like the bash history or something on a server, um, and that's as close as I can get to reproducing it, right? Um, and if I can't even remember how I've configured something or how, the order of operations that I've done to create a network with a server on top of it, how can I expect someone else to do it? Um, I think that infrastructure's code, if anything, is mostly about knowledge sharing uh, as well as you know capturing reproducibility, as much reproducibility as possible within automation. It's lending some predictability because when you make manual changes, um, it's very unpredictable long term, right? It's very, very maybe very predictable short term. You get a short term mm. benefit in that you do it very quickly, but long term you don't remember that you've made the change or you don't remember that that might exist, and that might actually be a you know a, a reason to um, you know be alarmed just because you didn't know something was configured and now you find yourself you know realizing that there was this configuration you never understood was in place. So I think that there's um, a lot of predictability when you do automation around infrastructure. So mm. basically automation is the price we pay for being allergic to documentation. We don't want to document <laughs> yeah. stuff, so let's automate it, then we know we can reproduce it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know, there's good automation and then there's uh, you know, bad automation no. too, right? We I don't want to be completely, you know, black and white on the automation situation, but um, you know, it's, it's not a binary like you're bad or good. But there's more sustainable automation. There's more. Uh, there's automation that is more predictable, and then there's the automation that you've written that's a one-off that's not so predictable. Um, and the dangerous thing about writing automation is that you have to make sure it is idempotent. And um, the idea of idempotency is that you uh, should be able to reapply that automation and not change the state as long as you're not changing the automation. Uh, and unfortunately. When we write one-off automation, we don't tend to consider item potency. We just consider writing it so that we've configured it that one time yeah. and we can write the script. That's it. Yeah, item potency is hard to do. If you do it correctly, it's hard to get uh, figured out. But also an advantage of uh, using tools and not inventing everything yourself, right? And because tools most of the time have that kind of built in if they can. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
I mean, in a, a few answers ago, you when you touched on uh, CICD as being kind of a, a key part of the of the puzzle with um, sort of infrastructure as code is is having a CICD pipeline, you know, absolutely mandatory. Is is should you consider that like a foundational piece? Like get get your CICD pipeline in place first before you even start playing around with these kind of concepts. I am going to be the person who says. If you're doing this for like one or two pieces of infrastructure, probably not, right? Yeah. It might not be worth the effort. But when you reach a point, when you, if you think that you're going, this is something that you are going to be using going, you know, after tr giving it a try, you've learned the foundations of writing infrastructure as code cleanly, which is an important part of maintaining infrastructure as code, but writing it cleanly, understanding the process by which you're going to make changes, then you will need CI CD. Uh, and that's mostly because you can't, it's going to be really difficult to scale the application of changes or the delivery of changes to a live infrastructure system without CICD. It's, you know, that you need a, some level of control. You need some level of workflow control as well. Um, the mistake that I see a lot of folks make is that they start doing uh, infrastructure's code locally and they continue to do it locally for quite some time. Um, mm -hmm. And after that point, they're, you know, they're managing 50, 60 resources and there's no way to gate or control changes to the production system as a result. And so putting CICD in place is mandatory when you're scaling infrastructure's code, but foundationally, it may not be the first thing you're going to think about. Yeah, but how do you avoid technical debt, if I can call it that? Because we, we build things, we hope they're going to grow. We, we assume it's going to get better and more important. So if I don't do it from the start, I have to play catch up at that point. So it's a hard thing to make a good decision, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with CICD too. It's really difficult to justify learning CICD mm -hmm. of infrastructure as code because it's so difficult. I mean, yeah. CICD is already that has like whole books dedicated to it. Yep. <laughs> uh, and you could dedicate like a three-part documentary if you wanted to on CICD. Um, and to do it for infrastructure is so much more nuanced. It's not uh, the easiest thing. You can mm -hmm. spend all your time trying to get it right and you still would not necessarily understand if it's the best workflow. So the result is that it's so hard for someone to justify spending so much time on CICD in the beginning. I wish people did, uh, but as you pointed out, like, technical debt is a reality. So we sort of push it to the side and we say, oh, we'll get to it later, you know, and then after we're like, okay, now we have to go back and we have to do it. Yeah, but I kind of heard that narrative before, to be honest, and it was mm -hmm. about security. I mean, in the olden days, security, that's hard, that's specific, you need to be specific. We do that later. We first make the thing work and then we'll look at security, which makes it so much harder to bolt in again when it's already running. So I do see here a lot of similarities here between CICD and security. And I guess both are as important because security makes it safe. CICD keeps it up because downtime is the biggest problem these days. Mm -hmm. I mean, the... In the same way that sort of CI/CD is uh, maybe maybe not mandatory, but certainly very very strongly recommended. You know, similar sort of uh, viewpoints around even like, thinking about things as as microservices and um, software-defined networking and um, and sort of Kubernetes. Like, are these all sort of if you've ticked all of these boxes, you really should be looking at infrastructure automation, infrastructure as code like this, or could you have all of those boxes ticked and 
and yet still not be looking at infrastructure as code yet? I think you have to have a lot of those boxes ticked. Uh, you know, a lot of those boxes, if you have them ticked, you're typically doing infrastructure as code. Yeah. Uh, you know, part of this is that those systems have to be scaled some, you know, managed and scaled somehow, right? And a lot of software-defined networking, whether you're doing something from a vendor, something more proprietary, or you're using a cloud provider, software-defined networking, which effectively that's what it is, um, you know, it's really hard to maintain and deploy a virtual network without some kind of infrastructure's code underneath it. Um, similarly with Kubernetes, we can have managed Kubernetes, but the power of managed Kubernetes is the fact that we can retrieve Kubernetes cluster, get Kubernetes clusters on demand, but how do you reproduce the configurations that you need? How do you know which node groups are attached where? How do you keep track of that? Um, so a number of folks who are doing sort of the, the I would say like the, uh, no, I wouldn't, I would, maybe it's like more of the, I guess, than what we associated as cloud technologies or something, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of the really dynamic technologies today, they're using infrastructure as code because out of necessity, that's the only way you can manage the underlying infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's the, that's the piece around, um, I think especially software defined networking as people spend more and more time in, in public cloud and go deeper into that space. It really is the only way that you can kind of uh, manage that in any sustainable, sensible way. And that, that's something I've seen people sort of finally sort of give up and groan and go like, oh, okay, now I'll, I guess I have to do this now. As that, that's been one of the things that's been sort of compelling for them to make that journey. Yeah. And okay. I think it's worth so, mentioning. Oh, go. No, go ahead. I think it's worth mentioning too that with the number of systems that we have to manage now and the number of services we have to manage, just as we started talking a lot, you know, years ago, we started talking about event-driven architectures for software. Mm. We're reaching a point of event-driven automation. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you see Kubernetes, Kubernetes has a foundation of event, here's how I respond, right? Um, within the cluster. Similarly with infrastructure as code, even in the network space, you have some kind of event-driven automation with response to network changes, or you have, uh, you know, changes that you might make in response to services being updated, right? Because we do have more dynamic environments now. Um, and in that case, having a foundation of infrastructure as code means it's easier for you to further automate in response to some event that's happening, whether it be a webhook from somewhere else, whether it be services changing in a catalog, could be network changes, other infrastructure changes, dependency changes, and more. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the simplest examples is, is literally just scaling infrastructure up and down on, on demand and having, I think if we, people have been doing that for quite a long time in a relatively simplistic way. And I think some of the things that this gives us, Nate, uh, the ability to do is far more fine-grained control of exactly what we increment and what we scale and how we scale and how we choose to scale it over time versus the uh, relatively blunt sort of uh, sledgehammer approach that I think most people think of when they think of auto-scaling uh, today. Okay, well... I mean, what we've talked about so far is a fairly, uh, fairly happy um, sort of picture of everything going right and uh, lots of fabulous automation everywhere. Um, now, what we all know is that uh, even though we've got automation, a lot of this automation is written by humans and occasionally 
humans make mistakes and things go wrong. So when, you know, when someone's built something that maybe doesn't go quite according to plan, um, I guess like, first things first, like how do you, how do you find out that something's gone wrong? Yeah, that's where uh, you have to have some kind of monitoring in place. <laughs> um, and that's the, you know, infrastructure It's funny. Infrastructure's code talks a lot about the practices, right? We think about, you know, shifting left. That's the that's the thought, right? Mm -hmm. you, you shift everything left. Everything is during the development process. But it doesn't mean that you omit monitoring. It doesn't mean that you omit uh, alerts or something, you know, some indicator that your system's gone wrong. Um, and sometimes this is, you know, there are many ways. There's a huge, huge amount of, theory around how to understand where systems have gone wrong and how you should be escalating the, that incident to someone, right? So is that on the application level? Is that on the infrastructure level? Um, so you should have a lot of monitoring or, or various uh, forms of telemetry um, providing information uh, you know, about all of those various layers, whether it be application down to platform orchestrator, down to you know, infrastructure to network, right? Um, and that's usually the find out something has gone wrong part. Uh, the other part, uh, so we can omit that part to a certain degree because there's a huge amount of thought around incident management, incident response, um, and identifying problems with anomalies and problems within the system. But there's actually the second part of this, which is does have to do with sort of the shift left part of this, right? Um, and one way that we don't really talk about it very often in infrastructure tends to be testing. Mm. Testing will or could cover about, you know, let's say the 80% of situations in which, a, you know, some change that you make may have a problem. Now, you can't duplicate your production environment and development. It's just not practical. Um, as much as we want to say that from an infrastructure as code theory standpoint, we want to be like, your development must be the same as production. Uh, I've never seen that be the case. Um, it's not a perfect one-to-one -one mapping. Yeah, And so... The, the reality is that you're looking for the bulk of, you know, possible failures to be caught, uh, hopefully, in some kind of testing stage in your development environment or a pre-production environment, at least. Um, and that's where testing becomes really important. That's sort of the first signal for something that might critically go wrong if you apply this change to production. Uh, quick question for me on the automation. I mean, with CICD, with IFRS code, capturing an alert it's, it's tempting to do auto-remediation to make just put on some API calls to fix the things automatically. Uh, how do you look at that? I like that. I wish that was uh, that was in more places. Unfortunately, um, you know, auto-remediation also has its own risks too. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if you have a very, uh, one thing that I've noticed is that if it's a very predictable system or if it's one that you control a lot of, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of who has access to it, how deployment is uh, is being handled, and you have a lot of control over those systems, it's a lot easier to do auto-remediation, right? So um, again, and we're going to go to the Kubernetes example because Kubernetes is a very closed system that has very, very specific behaviors, right? Not to say that it's perfect every time, but that's effectively what it's doing, right? You know, there's a there's a thought that, oh, you know, you're applying GitOps practices uh, to, let's say, Kubernetes, and that's really what it's at its core. It's doing auto-remediation. It's reconciling any problem problems or changes um, and or handling rollback if necessary, which is really nice, um, but it only works if it, you have a very predictable closed system. Um, I would say with infrastructure in public cloud across many different providers, for example, 
that usually doesn't go as well <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> it's just because, um, you know, we don't necessarily build, uh, we don't build, as much as we want to build something perfectly, there's no such thing as the perfect architecture. Um, we build for, ten we tend to optimize for what is good for us in that point in time. And the result is that sometimes we have unique configurations that don't do well with auto remediation. I, I love the idea of uh, the perfect architecture. I can imagine this sort of, uh, you know, this, this architecture diagram that you could look at once and it, you'd be blinded by it being so amazing. You'd never be able to see ever, anything ever again. Uh, so when, when you talk about, um, uh, you mentioned the word rollback uh, earlier, and like I've, I've heard sort of rollback or roll forward uh, in terms of methods of sort of remediating when there are, when there have been challenges or, and, you know, something's been found out and something's been fixed, you know, what's, what's the difference and then sort of what do you, what do you see being more practical for most people? Yeah. So I use rollback as a general term because that's the one most people are familiar with, um, especially mm. in the infrastructure space. They, the, the idea is that you're going to take a change, revert it and truly roll back the infrastructure system to a previous state. In reality, it is not rollback. Um, when you do something like infrastructure as code, um, the mentality is always roll forward because you are never fully reverting to a previous state. You are always reverting to a new state that is a duplicate of the previous. Uh, I think that when we get into this thought process that we are truly reverting the system to its original, you know, original state, um, we fall into the trap of thinking that it's still functional. When in reality, roll back may not be perfect either. Um, if you have something like a database that's been corrupted, the secondary has also been corrupted, and you can't, I mean, how do you even roll back? There's no roll back because, well, there's no state for you to necessarily roll back to. <laughs> um, yeah, the only option is to roll forward, maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. Potentially create a new database, restore the data as much as you can. Um, and so that's why in, in the case of infrastructure as code in particular, uh, I'm a big supporter of roll forward. And that's a, a way to mentally say to yourself, I can't really restore the system to an, a perfect original state or the previous original state. I can get it functional that's in a, in a way that's maybe duplicating the previous state or reproducing mm -hmm. the original state, but it's not going to be the same exact infrastructure system. And so that opens a lot of doors for recovery because you're not just rolling forward to perhaps duplicate the previous working state. But if you still can't do that, you have the ability to reproduce new infrastructure thanks to principle of immutability and restore functionality, you know, by either adding, you know, recovering some data, restoring it to the new place or, you know, failing over all your applications there. Um, and that's the absolute worst case scenario. But it opens up a lot of doors for you when you think about rolling forward. Got it. Okay. So one of the other pieces of this sort of puzzle that people often talk about is around you mentioned earlier around testing and you know, staging environments and like they're never as much as we we might like to to think that they they could one day be a one-to-one -one, like they never realistically is that just the, the the cost benefit analysis is never there um sort of the one area that people start to think of that sort of um those sorts of ideas is when people are talking about dr um, in some like disaster recovery in some meaningful way. And it sounds like infrastructure as code could make 
um, for you know uh, very compelling uh, DR conversations, making it sort of effectively cheap or even even free. But presumably that you've still got a huge amount of testing that need to go in place. You've still got you know your mean time to recovery um, that you need to be thinking about as as part of that. Exactly. I think that we, you know, at least traditional infrastructure created standing DR sites, right? A passive DR site yeah. where, you know, you had full duplicates of infrastructure. With infrastructure as code, you could possibly reproduce a duplicate of the infrastructure in a different region on demand. Um, and maybe you have it, instead of running it all the time, you do, you're able to do this in an hour and, you know, you you know, who knows if you're able to do this in an hour and you have it up and running, it's, it's great. You know, you still have that available. Um, but the reality is I think that a lot of folks still prefer having in, in sort of a, an active or a persistent disaster recovery site, um, and continuing to maintain it using infrastructure as code. So everything you do in one is duplicated into the other. Um, I don't know if it necessarily, from a cost standpoint, I don't know if it necessarily works all the time. Um, there are ways that you could potentially do sort of, at least from a cost standpoint, you could potentially do something like a development environment in your DR site. And then if you need to, you fail over. You know, you have a relatively, from a security standpoint, you have a relatively similar configuration in both. And then you can fail over and do some kind of swapping in blue-green, right, if necessary. But... Mm -hmm. Um, there are many different ways to do it. I think with disaster recovery, inevitably, that's why now we've moved away from sort of a, pass a passive model in disaster recovery, um, and we've supported more of an active, active model in which we expect to be running both sites, uh, you know, processing requests, whether it be multi-region, uh, multi-data center, whichever you decide to run it. It's, um, yeah. And I think we've done it as a way to make sure we use every resource we have available. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, given the, the all the benefits that we've talked about, you know, is and um, we we mentioned about the the sort of the checkboxes uh, sort of comment earlier. You know, if you're doing multiple of these things, it's probably time to look at it. But is is every should every company or organization be be looking at this? If they're not already, should this be on their their sort of medium short to medium term horizon? Or are there some organizations where this still doesn't yet make any sense for them to dip their toes in the water? I think that it is something that they sh it, every organization should look at medium term. Mm. Um, mostly because if you want to take advantage of the public cloud offerings that are available, as well as just sustaining your overall business, uh, you know, business as well as you know your engineering, your engineering time, and and productivity in general, um, it's a lot easier to go about it from an infrastructure as code standpoint uh, than it is manually going in, configuring things and maintaining it over time. Um, a lot of, interestingly enough, a lot of smaller organizations uh, start with, you know, small maintenance, you know, a little bit of maintenance using manual, manual sort of configuration, et cetera, of infrastructure, manual creation of infrastructure. And over time they realize, well, medium term, couple years later, as they've grown their platform, they realize they have to use infrastructure as code. Um, it's mm. the only way they'll continue duplicating or, or creating new environments, uh, whether they be growing their customer base or more. 
um, if you're, especially in the technology industry, if you are producing a technology product, um, more often than not, you will need to deploy that product or somehow create that product in someone else's infrastructure. And, you know, it doesn't really work to do this with, you know, a manual configuration. It's a lot easier to say, let me bring uh, this infrastructure's code templating, whether it be CloudFormation, Terraform, et cetera, um, whether you bring that in and you give it to your customer or your client and say, let me just deploy it in this manner, you have it up and running, and then you can deploy your product on top of it. It makes it a lot faster. And that is the end of part two around infrastructure as code. We rattled our way through a few more topics, but there's still a few more to go. Hope you've been enjoying this series as much as I have. And uh, But I think, unless there's anything else from you, Jan. Nothing but a big thank you to Rosemary. Indeed, indeed. In that case, uh, that is all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution really does help. We're on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, comment. We may even respond. Hit the notification bell and do all the YouTube things. You can also go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and for more information about this podcast. You can follow mainly Jan on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag and send your feedback if you are that way inclined to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is Building Blocks Dave. And my name is Flotsam Jan. <laughs> Not Jetsam. <laughs> now nah, it's too futuristic. <laughs> and we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.